0: Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources or any other resources you find online would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that Through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. If you would take your copy of God's word with me this morning, you know where we are. We are in the first letter of Peter chapter 1. We are in the first letter of Peter, chapter 1. A quote from John MacArthur's book, The Glory of Heaven. We don't seek to escape this life by dreaming of heaven but we do find we can endure this life because of the certainty of heaven heaven is eternal earth is temporal those who fix all of their affections of the fleeting things of this world are the real escapists because they are vainly attempting to avoid facing eternity, by hiding in the fleeting shadows of things that are only transient. Again, that was from John MacArthur's book, The Glory of Heaven, so a question for you this morning is, what are you hoping in? We have seen clearly throughout our time in First Peter so far that trials, among other things, will certainly reveal what your hope is in. If your hope is in comfort, discomfort will make you feel hopeless. If your hope is in riches, the lack thereof will make you feel hopeless. If it's in relationships, difficulty in those relationships will make you feel, you guessed it, hopeless. Hopeless. This is why Peter has taken the first part of his letter to remind us of the grace of God that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ and the glories that await us in the next life so that we would see what we are to put our hope in, why we can rejoice in the midst of trials, why we can have hope in the midst of seemingly Hopeless situations. Peter has been reminding us of these glorious truths. And today we will see a major shift in the focus of this letter. As we read chapter 1 verses 13 through 16. So if you would please stand as we read God's word. First Peter chapter 1. 13 through 16. This is the word of the living God. Therefore. am holy. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come before you this morning with our Bibles open, needing to hear clearly from your word. Lord, and I am just a man. I am as equally needing grace as anybody else, if not more. So I confess here in the hearing of everyone, more that I am unable to do this without your Spirit. I pray that your Spirit would empower the preaching of your Word and that your Word would be received in ready hearts, that we would clearly see what your Word is telling us to do, and that you would empower us to apply these things to our life so we would not be hearers only, but doers. May Christ be glorified this morning, and it's his, his name we pray, amen. You can be seated. We have, uh, as you can see, four major headings to work through this morning. And I'll go ahead and tell you the title of today's sermon is Prepare Your Mind for Action, part one. So we will be spending some time in this passage. Today, we are really only going to focus on verse 13. And then we will move to next week, Lord willing, looking at the rest of the passage. But I, I can't shake the feeling that this is just so foundational of an understanding that we really need to grasp in order to get the rest of this book. So speaking of the rest of this book let me remind you that since Peter is writing to encourage and exhort believers to stand firm in the faith, basically all of the rest of this letter is going to be the exhortation. So far, verses 1 through 12 have been the encouragement, the look at what God has done for you And then now in verse 13, we're going to see the shift where the rest of this letter is going to be action. It's going to be, here's how you apply this to your life. Here's what to do now. Here is how to be faithful sojourners. So in verses verses 1 through 12, we saw the motivation, if you will, to be faithful. Why we are sojourners is because we belong to Christ. The world does not. There are others in this world who are of Christ, but we understand that there are those who are in Christ and those who are not. And as we live among people who are not of Christ, we are sojourners. Thus, we are going to see the call to faithfulness the rest of this letter. And it starts right here in verse 13. I told you last week that there was a big therefore coming, and we saw it. That's our first heading, is we're going to see what is the therefore, therefore. I told you last week that we had been spending our time looking at what the therefore is there for. But at risk of belaboring this point, which I hope that I am not, I do want to deal with this word a little bit more, because the thrust behind or the motivation for the following exhortation is marked by therefore. So we're looking back at, as I just said, verses 3 through 12. Look at what the triune God has done for you in salvation. Look at what a great salvation you have. Now here is how you respond. It's the same idea as Paul's use of therefore in Romans chapter 12. So we won't turn there, but you're undoubtedly familiar with do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. In verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. And so what he's doing is he's pointing back to chapter 1 through 11 of Romans. That's a big section to be referring back to here. Peter has... Been a little bit more brief in his writing and has is only pointing back here to a, a half of a chapter, essentially, not to more than half of an entire letter. But you understand, this is the same idea. It's a different word in the Greek and Romans, but it has the same thrust. I've been teaching you truth. Now, here is how you live truth. Here is what you do with this truth. The therefore is there for the purpose of telling us that it is not merely enough to know sound doctrine. You must apply sound doctrine. In today's day, now that we live after the Puritan Reformation of the 1500s, we have what's known as Reformed Theology which if you didn't know, that's largely the frame of reference that I've been preaching from. Oh, surprise. But in Reformed theology, there is a heavy emphasis on knowing the Word of God. But we need to know that it's not enough to consider yourself Reformed if you have not been transformed. It is not enough to love Reformed theology, you must apply the great and wonderful truths that we learn. Sound doctrine demands to be believed, to be loved, to be applied to our life. It does you no good to only know in your mind a bunch of Bible facts. It does you no good if you can articulate the gospel, but don't believe in it or have not been transformed by it. The glorious truths that Peter has been expounding upon demand to be lived. It does us no good to be able to quote all of the great reformers, again, if we are not transformed. More than that, it does you no good to sit week after week hearing God's word and not apply it to your life. Peter is not writing to simply display his firm grasp on the gospel. Look at how well I can articulate the predestination and the prophecies of old. He's not trying to show off his theological expertise. He's writing to, as he says in chapter 5, exhort and declare that this is the true grace of God and we ought to stand firm in it. Here is what we are to believe on one hand, and here's what we must know, here's what we must believe, and here is how you live. Rest assured, if these two things are not married, you do not have the Christian life. You have a set of beliefs and knowledge that have done nothing to save you. We know that on Judgment Day, as we stand before the great white throne it will not be how much do you know church history that saves you it will be do you belong to christ have you been transformed by his word have you put your faith in him to the effect that you have now begun to hate the sin you once loved and love the righteousness you once hated do you now love christ by the indwelling of the holy spirit That is what will matter on Judgment Day. And this is evidenced in our life by not just hearing and knowing, but by living and doing. Here is what we are to believe, and here is how we are to live. So let us see clearly the importance of this shift in the letter. Yes, it is an early shift in the letter, as I just said. Chapter 12 of Romans is how long it takes Paul to do it there. But all that we have seen so far is the teaching of doctrine, now is the exhortation. Why would it be so short? If he is writing to remind them of the grace of God as they are being grieved by various trials, as he said, why is he not taking more time? Why did Romans take 11 chapters to teach? And then finally he makes a shift, and here he took 12 verses. Why is that? In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3 of his second letter, he gives us some insight. In 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, it says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. You see that? This is the second letter I'm writing to you. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So this is not to imply that they already know all that there is to know. We know that we're constantly growing in knowledge. And it's not saying that they are well-versed already in the deeper things of God. In fact, in chapter 2 of our letter, he's going to write to them as though they are still children. He's going to tell them to crave uh, spiritual milk so that they can... Grow up into salvation. So, Peter here is reminding them of something very simple the gospel, their salvation, the grace shown to them by God through Christ. Church, we can never get so mature, so profound so grandiose in our communication of doctrine that we forget this pure simplicity of remembering that my sins are gone. There's nothing sweeter than that. I have a relationship with the Creator because He bore my sins. What could be greater than that? And in reality... We spend so little time rehearsing God's early grace in our life. And this is why we struggle to apply his truth. It's because we forget, as Paul said, you are not your own. You have been purchased with a price. You're not your own. You don't have a claim to yourself anymore. You don't have a right to look at God and say, why are you doing this to me? You're not your own. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. That our sins are gone and forgiven and wiped away, that we stand justified before God Almighty, clothed in the righteous robes of Christ's imputed righteousness. This really is all the motivation you need. Notice, too, that Peter is pointing back to the fact that your inheritance is kept for you. Shortly, he's going to say that grace is going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are passive recipients in that guard, in that regard, that he brings us grace. He brought us into salvation by his grace. And same here, we are passive recipients of grace when He appears. The triune God has truly, truly done it all. We have been repeating virtually every week that we have seen in the opening that the Father has predestined us, the Son purchased salvation for us, and the Spirit applies salvation to us. We were blessed, undeserving recipients of this magnificent grace Yet our faith is not a passive religion, is it? We receive grace, yes, but then we are to live in response to that grace. The heart who has truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that has been transformed by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, will take on the mindset of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me, listen, was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. You see, God's grace in Paul's life was the only motivating factor that he needed to pour his life out as a drink offering. Just remembering that I once was a blasphemer, insolent, hostile in mind. And he has now made me new and forgiven me. Though I was his enemy, he has now made me his friend. That is to be enough for you and I to live a life unto his glory, understanding again that I've been purchased with a price. That this grace would motivate us to be faithful sojourners who walk worthy Of the Lord. In a wayward world. This is because we do not labor. In vain. We are not laboring. For salvation. We are laboring. Because we have salvation. We are awaiting the appearance. Of our blessed hope. We are awaiting the revelation. Of Jesus Christ as he said in. Verse 7 and now again. At the end of verse 13. The revelation of Jesus. Christ our inheritance is secure. Our destination is sure. We have a future hope that it will not always be like it is right now. We are living in the midst of God's grace now, and we are awaiting the day when we receive the fullest expression of his grace when we are with him in glory. Listen, this is all guaranteed. It is a living hope that we have. Therefore, set your hope on this future grace that will be revealed when Christ returns. That's the main thrust here of verse 13 in our second heading is to set your hope on the next life. It's the main thrust because of the way that the verbs are written in the original language, I won't bore you with all of the details, but where we have passively received so much of what Peter has written thus far, he now turns to the imperative. In other words, you have passively received salvation, now set your hopes on it. There is such an intentionality indicated to us here, and you get this sense of looking beyond this life to the next one. Let's read this again in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's as though he's writing to them saying, listen, elect exiles of the dispersion, All of the fullness of your salvation is waiting for you beyond the horizon of this life. Therefore, set your hope there and then, not in this life or this world. So what if your life is full of pain and misery, this side of glory? If it means an eternity of bliss? In the presence of our Lord? Do we not believe that will have been worth it? Do we hurt? Do we mourn? Do we experience heartache in this lifetime, great and tremendous? Yes, we do. The command to rejoice in the midst of trials is not rejoice because you lost your job, it's rejoice because your hope is not here. It's somewhere else. Don't rejoice because you have cancer. Rejoice because your hope is not here. It's in the next life. You look beyond what's happening here. The Christian life is not and never has been marked by an absence of pain and suffering, but by hope that outlasts and outshines The pain and suffering. I believe that as you read through the scriptures, there's always this sense of the scriptures pointing you away from this life. The cares of this world. Away from this life onto the next one. It always speaks of the fullness of the glory of the Lord as beyond here. As though it's not here, it's outside of here. There's there's another place There's another time when we will see it and we will experience it. There's another place and another time where you will have a resurrected body. Do you understand? If you lost all of your limbs, you would have a resurrected body that is lacking nothing. Those who have been beheaded for the cause of Christ. A resurrected body in all of its fullness and fullness. Free from sin. The new heavens and the new earth, they lie just beyond this one. Your glorified body, that promise to wipe away every tear, the extinction of sin, endless joys, the end of death, it all lies beyond this one. So why are you setting your hope here? Nothing is, none of this is kept here. Peter reminds us earlier in the letter that it's being kept in heaven for you. And now we're looking at the exhortation, so then set your hopes there, not here. We're promised suffering and pain, affliction, trials, tribulations of all different kinds here, And we can rejoice because we know that they are doing something. They are preparing me for these greater glories in the next life. So he says, set your hope fully on this grace that will be brought to you when Christ Jesus is revealed. If you hear nothing this morning, hear this. That your hope is not in this life. It's not. It's not in a better job. It's not in good health. It's not in everything going well with your family. It's not in a new home. It's not in a new car. It's not in those sun shining every day. It's not in any of those things. It's in the next life. And praise God for that because it's kept away from all of the stain and effects of sin. It's kept in heaven for you. You're hoping in anything of this life, you can rest assured that you will be consistently disappointed. You will find that you are often upset. You will ever be riding the waves of your emotions. And that is revealing in your heart that your hope is here. And you're hoping in a certain outcome, and your faith is here, and your eyes are here, and your mind is here, and your heart is here, and that's why we see here, preparing your minds for action. The actual translation is the New King James Version has it, is to gird up the loins of your mind. We don't really talk like that anymore, do we? This is an old expression that doesn't make a lot of sense to us 21st century Americans, but it has great meaning. Believe it or not, in the time of this writing, they didn't have Levi's. They didn't have basketball shorts. They wore robes. So when it came time to need to do some sort of strenuous physical activity, guess what? The robe is in the way. How can I move freely about when my robe is going to trip me up? And so what they would need to do is gird up their loins. It was a strange process. I've read that they would reach between their legs to grab the back of the robe, pull it forward, and tuck it into a belt of sorts. So you can imagine they looked absolutely ridiculous. They looked like a pamper. But this was girding up the loins, and the point of doing this was so that they could move about without the encumbrance of the robe. It was a whenever you would see someone dressed that way, you would not assume it was a fashion choice. You would assume that they were preparing for action. Something was going to happen that they needed to be prepared for. And that's why we see the ESV translation, preparing your minds for action. This is indicating some very real intentionality when it comes to being prepared for what is to come. Listen, we'll never know what specific storm or trial or suffering may be awaiting us for to prepare for it specifically. But we can, at any time, prepare our minds by setting our hope fully on the grace that is to come. Additionally, we find that these great truths that we've been looking at thus far— are not only to be known, but to be lived. There is a reason why we see that, again, back in Romans chapter 12. We are not only to know and learn of these truths, but be transformed by them. We are to live differently because of the truth that we know. We are to rejoice in the midst of trials. Why? Because of the great truths that we know. We are to walk worthy in a wayward world. Why? Because of the great truths that we know. The reality is that we will not live differently, though, without a change in our minds. This is our third heading, prepare your mind. There are many false religions and false gospels based on harnessing the power of your mind. They say things like, if you think it, you can achieve it. You can do anything you set your mind to do. Is that true? If I set my mind to fly, could I jump off of the roof and fly? No, I can't. It was not a trick question. Countless books are written on the mind and how to unlock its full potential. There are researchers and scientists who actually say now that they have supposedly done research that indicates the power of, of our thinking as it pertains to healing the body. This is a quote from Stanford Medicine. They were quoting a clinical psychologist who says, quote, Pain is highly responsive to each person's psychology and mindset. Those who expect worse pain ruminate on it and feel helpless about it. What's called pain catastrophizing. They feel more intense pain, stay longer in hospitals after surgery, and often require more painkillers. On the other hand, those who shift to a positive mindset feel less pain, spend less time in hospitals, and require fewer pain medications. End quote. Now, I'm not here to discuss the validity of this research, but only to bring out a point that even people in the world Understand that the mind is an ultra powerful supercomputer that runs the body. And they know this while often not believing in God or that God created the brain. Yet, often in so many Christian circles, we altogether discount thinking about our mind at all. We tend to dissociate our faith, spiritual matters. From the mind, as though God only intends to change your heart, and not your mind as well. All of this, and we believe that God made our brains. Scripture does not think this way, though. Ephesians two three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the guess what mind. And we by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see that carrying out the desires of the body and mind that made us children of wrath? Colossians 1.21 And you who once were alienated and hostile in, can you guess it? Mind doing evil deeds. You are alienated and hostile in your mind. Again, the hostile mind producing evil deeds. Romans 8, 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Again, the mind is behind all of the sinful actions. The mind plays a critical role in our behavior. This is why we find texts like Romans 12.2 that tells us do not be conformed to this world but be transformed transformed by the renewal of your what? Your mind. You need to renew your mind your mind, which leads to transformation. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. In both of those passages, Paul is doing exactly what he's doing here. It was doctrine, 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 now here's what you do. Colossians 3, it's the same thing. So then, if you've been raised with Christ, In other words, so then if you have everything I've taught in chapter one and two, here's what you do. You set your mind on things above Romans chapter 12. I've been teaching you for 11 chapters, doctrine, 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 the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. What do you need to do? Renew your mind. Isn't that such a strange place to begin? That is, I would be willing to wager that's probably not where any of us would begin, We don't think about our thinking in Christianity very often. Our brain is just this wheelhouse that just does basic operations. And somehow, as though they're disconnected, my heart and my mind are totally different entities. My heart is good. Don't look at my mind, though. I have crazy thoughts. If we were to cast your thoughts onto this TV up here just the thoughts that you've had this morning how many of you would be running in terror probably all of us if we're being honest you you're going to see what I think about oh my gosh but the bible is consistently concerned with your thought life set your minds on things above moreover it's a part of this new covenant that we are that we are in that the mind be affected by God's law. Hebrews ten sixteen. listen to this. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I bring up all of this to point to the fact that our minds play a critical role in pursuing holiness. Verses 14 through 16 that we see here, talks about being obedient children, being holy because God is holy. But this is all prefaced by saying, preparing your mind for action. You have to gird up the loins of your mind. You have to prepare your mind. You have to be sober-minded. In other words, you will not passively conform to the image of Christ. You have passively received Christ, but you are actively pursuing Christ-likeness in the same way that a man girds up his loins as he prepares for some sort of strenuous activity, so we are to prepare our minds for action. 2 Corinthians 10.5 displays this very well. He says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you see the intentionality there? We take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. I'm anxious today. Christ said, don't be anxious. Thoughts, obey. I'm worried today. Christ said, don't worry. Thoughts, obey. I'm angry today. Scripture says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Thoughts obey. I'm sad today. Scripture says rejoice in the Lord always. Thoughts obey. As we are doing this, we will become sober-minded. But you see the intentional nature of getting your thoughts in order. You ever been in a bad mood and not been able to figure out why? Check your thoughts. See what you're thinking. And think on things above and tell me if it does not change how you feel and how you act. Bring your thoughts into submission to Christ when you are feeling the urge and the draw to lust To anger, to jealousy, to greed, to rage, to whatever—bring those thoughts into obedience to Christ. Set your mind on things above, and you tell me if you still go off in sin. It won't happen because you're preparing your minds for action. Our last title: Be sober-minded. This is a word that could be used in that is often used in conjunction with not being drunk, but here it's being used to paint a picture for us. A man who is drunk is not sensible, he's not rational, he's not self-controlled, certainly not alert. He can't walk straight, see straight, or speak straight. A man who is weighed down with the cares of this world also isn't very sensible, rational, self-controlled, or alert to the things of God. Moreover, a person who wants to get drunk will often speak of wanting to go numb and a person weighed down with the cares of this world who does not have a mind prepared for action is numb to the things of God. If you're in the midst of a trial and you're so focused on your trial and your frustration that you have become numb to the promises that we are supposed to cling to, you are not sober-minded. Your mind is not prepared for action. If knowing that you have a great inheritance being kept in heaven for you, that you are predestined unto salvation, that one day your tears will be wiped away, if that's not enough motivation for you to rejoice in the midst of trials or to set your hope on this future grace, you're not being sober-minded. Your mind is not prepared for action. You need to bring your thoughts into obedience to Christ. So then how do I do this? We'll expound on this more next week, but it's really very simple. Look at verse 14. As obedient children. If you are a child of God, that means you are to obey God. If you are a child of God, that means you are to obey him. When his word says to trust him, guess what? Trust him. When his word says, flee youthful lusts, guess what? Flee youthful lusts. When his word sets forth the model for us to store up his word in our hearts, What does that mean for you? That you need to store up his word in your heart. The problem with our inability to be sober-minded or prepare our minds for action is not a lack of clarity on the part of scripture, but a lack of obedience on our part. Thus, we need to revisit often the hope that will be brought to us. The grace that has already been shown to us. Rehearse in your mind verses 3 through 12 that speak of the great salvation that we have. And fix your mind on these things. When your brain is tempted to be sad, downcast, angry, whatever it is, bring your thoughts into captivity. Put them on verses 3 through 12. Just do that. As Paul writes in Philippians four through eight, four or eight rather, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Unequivocally, without question, our great salvation fits these categories. Set your mind and hope on God's grace. Remind yourself daily, and I mean daily. Actually do this daily that your hope is not in this world. Let's be very practical. It's not enough to just say, I need to read my Bible more. That's not how you prepare your mind for action. How do you prepare your mind for action? When will I read the Bible? What will I read At what time of the day, for how long, how often am I going to do this? That is how you prepare your mind for action. And if it's before work and you need to get up earlier, go to sleep earlier. That's how you prepare your mind for action. I do this. I apply this to my life. If you say I need to pray more, okay, when will you pray? How often will you pray? What will you pray about? When are these things going to take place? How often are you going to do this in the week? Well, Pastor Matt, I don't want it to turn into religious duty. If I do it all the time, it's just going to become religious. Well, guess what? It won't if you do it in light of God's grace as displayed in verses 3 through 12. If you do it because of verses 3 through 12, it will not become that way. It won't if you are setting your hope fully and the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It'll be preparation for you for the next life. If I know I'm going to spend an eternity praising and worshiping my God, doesn't it just stand to reason to fill my mind and my heart with as much truth about this God so that I can praise him and worship him for all of eternity? Absolutely it does. Let's stand. Your hope is not in this life. And as I said earlier, that is a very good thing. For the believer, we have a great inheritance awaiting us in the next life. If we are to rejoice in the midst of trials, if we are to live lives pleasing to God, we must set our hopes fully on the grace to come by preparing our minds for action. We're going to have our time to respond to the Lord, however he is tugging at your heart. I'm going to pray. We'll play the song. As always, you can pray, you can sing. Just allow the word to deal with you this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the clear and plain way that it is written so that we can clearly understand it. And I pray and confess, Father, that we are, myself included, often prone to hear the truth and never live the truth and apply the truth, Lord. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. I pray that you help us this week to be very intentional in preparing our minds for action because you are worthy of this, Lord. I pray that you go with us and take us and bring us back safely. We pray for this in your holy name. Amen.